0: So uh, turn to James chapter 5, if you would please. James chapter 5. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise, is what that third verse said, right? Riches I heed not. I heed not. Did I read that right is it heed not or is it need not heed with an h Did I get that right So what does heed mean rich riches i heed not in other words i don't i don't care not that we're not good stewards of the things that god gives us but what i really am after what, I re- what my life's pursuit is really about is not that. Nor man's empty praise. I also don't go through life looking for that. Thou, you, God, you're my inheritance. Now and always, right? The always part we understand because the, the Christian life is so future-looking, right? But the now part we need to get right. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou my inheritance, now and always. So now, as I'm living now, my satisfaction is found from having Him as my inheritance through faith which God gave to me. The Christian life is, in many respects, a counterintuitive one when, It comes to living it out in the world. The concept of the Gospel is a simple one when it comes to the fact that we're all sinners. God, in great love for us, gave Christ His Son who died bearing the penalty for our sin and then rose from the dead. And now the gift of God, the grace of God, is that through faith in Christ, your sins are washed away and you have eternal life. And I think that when explained that simply, most people can wrap their minds around what it's about. But then once we've been saved, how ought we to live? And boy, James in this letter has been really unpacking a lot of that for us, hasn't he? And now we come to chapter 5, and it would seem to shift gears quite a bit from what we were talking about in chapter 4. And in a sense, it goes back to what the opening of the book was about. If you remember, in the opening of the book, we were told, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, etc. and so forth. Talked about, uh, if you lack wisdom, ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, but let him ask in faith. Without doubting, because the one who doubts is like a sea, a ship tossed on the sea, or however that went. Um, right. So we get back to this issue, this reality that Christians suffer as they go through life. This chapter addresses that, and what at least the first half of this chapter, and it addresses it from the perspective of that suffering coming in the form of oppression at the hands of powerful, rich, influential, evil, wicked people of this world. Let me read for you something that I wrote years ago. I did this before, but I wrote... Many years ago, a Bible study, not too many years ago, but I wrote a uh, Bible study and I have these little introductions. If you're there on Thursday nights, you know that, that we always start off by reading this little introduction and I, I pulled out my study notes from back then uh, for this passage of scripture and I read through this introduction that I had written way long ago and I, I thought it was really edifying, kind of sets our minds in the right place. Let me read this and then we'll pray and then I'll read through the chapter. But I think this sets the context well for what it is that chapter 5 gets at. Ready? Those who have walked with Christ since the early days of Christianity have faced persecution and oppression in various forms. Even today, in a modern society like 21st century America, while we certainly do not face en masse anything comparable to some of the extreme persecution the early Christians did, not to mention current believers in some other parts of the world, we experience things like mockery, rejection, silencing, exclusion, and slander, right? Right? That may not seem as dangerous as someone being murdered for their faith. But it's suffering. It's tough to be mocked because you love God and you love Christ. It's tough to be rejected or excluded or told that you can't speak. You can't talk about that. You can't share that view. It's difficult to be told that your opinion. Even these days, just your thoughts, even if you don't share them, just what you think can get you in trouble in this world. To be slandered, falsely accused as a Christian, oh, that may not be as bad as being killed for your faith, but it's hard, right? To endure hardship, in whatever form, while maintaining a strong faith in the Lord Jesus, has always been a mark of His followers. Still is, will always be, as long as this world continues. James addresses here what must have been a fairly common experience of his audience. Oppression at the hands of the rich. The believers addressed directly By the epistle, are the 12 tribes scattered abroad, which is a reference to Jewish believers in Jesus the Messiah, and we've explained that. Wherever they were scattered, now listen to this, perhaps on two fronts, being Jews and being Christians, neither of which were exactly mainstream anywhere at the time, and the combination of the two, even less so. But, you know, as you traveled around the world, and still true today, you don't find many Jews outside of, ironically, this little part of the United States and Israel itself. Jewish communities scattered throughout the world are typically pretty small. That, obviously, in the first century, was also true of Christians. You didn't find a lot of churches. You didn't find a lot of synagogues. Now imagine being both a Jewish believer in Jesus. You were rare in the first century, second century, 3rd century. You're pretty rare. Well, they experienced oppression and persecution greatly. Um, The passage here starts with a scathing indictment of those who are rich in this world and in power to oppress those of lower earthly position. The purpose would seem to be to encourage those who are oppressed By reminding them that while God may permit circumstances to continue in this present age, what? This is a temporary place. And deliverance, even from this kind of oppression, even from some of the things I've already talked about here today to you, that deliverance will come. You will be slandered as a Christian. You will be spoken evil of when you do good in the name of Jesus. You will be lied about even when you are honest. You will be excluded from things even though you desire to be part of them for good. You will be silenced even though you're bursting in your hearts to share the truth and the love of the Gospel. You will experience those things as you go through this life. But deliverance will be Come. And the unrepentant, the unrepentant enemies, the unrepentant purveyors of all of this trouble will be judged. That's coming. That's what James is getting at. Stick it out, stay with it, endure. Even learn to embrace the trouble that comes. Because the Christian is a person who's looking ahead for deliverance. We're not looking around for it now. We're looking ahead for it. Judgment will come. Righteousness will come. Justice will come. When? When the author of those things makes his glorious return. There's more, but I'll stop for there for now. Let's pray together and we'll go right into the passage. Our Father in heaven, Lord, as we live our lives for you, we endure all sorts of hardship. We try. We try to walk with you, to pray to you, to trust in you to use our gifts and do good in Your name. To love You and to love one another. To spread the word of the Gospel. For the most part, Lord, we have been spared of the most severe forms of persecution, at least up until now. Generally speaking, probably not too many of us, Lord, have concerns about being killed because of our faith. But we do, Lord. I can read through and think about these things and find in my own life many times where I feel like I've been excluded or slandered or mocked, silenced because of my faith. Lord, I take these words as great encouragement. And I pray that my brothers and sisters would take these words as great encouragement. And like the hymn we just sang, said, we would not heed riches or the praise of men, but we would remember that now and always you're our inheritance. Help us to keep our eyes and our hearts set on you and not on the things that this world values when you say you're going to judge them all one day. Help us to be wise, to be humble, to be trusting, to be faithful, to persevere through hardship. I ask it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. James 5.1. I'll read through verse 12. Come now, you rich... Weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Can I read that again? Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient, establish your hearts. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord. What? That the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no no, lest you fall into judgment. couple of thoughts before I start just picking it apart. A first thought that I just had, even before I just get into the text itself, is as I read that and think about, in general, the subject of patiently enduring hardship, I find that faithfulness is something that you exercise and you want to have in your life, but it is the outworking of something that's in your heart. And the thing that's in your heart that is shown, manifested in your life by being faithful to God is having a heart that trusts Him. This is where everything starts. And everything good, everything godly, everything that the Lord desires, everything that will bring about what it is that the Lord wants to establish and maintain in your life all starts with you having a trusting heart. Salvation itself only comes to those who have trusting hearts. Those who hear the words of the Gospel and what? Believe. And the idea of believe, as we've explained many, many times, is not a simple acknowledgement that I believe it's actually true. It's deeper than that. It's putting your trust in it. Right? What good is it if a person hears what are the facts of the gospel message that Jesus was born, lived His life, was crucified, rose from the dead? Yeah, I believe all that happened. He's the Son of God. Yeah, I believe that's true. But it's more than that. It's putting your trust in Him. You know, the Bible speaks in the end times of judgment coming upon those who do not Obey the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Gospel is not just something that is acknowledged to be true. The Gospel is a command which needs to be obeyed. And the command is what? Trust in Christ. Trust Him. That's what believe means. To trust Him. And then that goes from there throughout every day of your life. Trust in the Lord. Trust in Him. Put your trust in Him. Are you going through hardships? Trust Him. Are people slandering you and silencing you and persecuting you in some of the ways that we're talking about here? Trust God. God promises to bring deliverance. Maybe that deliverance will come in this life. Maybe it won't. That deliverance will come at the end that deliverance will come when He comes. There is a day coming when all of the persecution and wickedness and unrighteousness which men inflict upon one another will be answered by God. There is a day of reckoning coming for the dwellers of this earth. Especially those who harm the children of God who trust in Him. Jesus said it would be better for those who make His little ones to stumble that a millstone would be cast around their necks and that they would be thrown into the sea. Do you trust Him? I'm not asking you, do you believe the Gospel? I'm hoping that you're here today because you do. And if you don't, Put your faith in Christ. We've explained it already. Trust in Christ. But what I'm asking you is, as you go through the hardships of life that every Christian must endure, do you trust Him? One day, we will all stand before Him and we will give an account for everything we have done I I don't know why some Christians have been infected with some really inferior subpar teaching or inclinations or something. But there are some people that think that the judgment seat of Christ is somehow not real or is somehow just a theological concept. I think it's actually real. And I think that when the Christian, not the lost person, but when the Christian stands before Jesus, we give an account for what we have done in our lives whether good or bad. There's, no, there's nothing difficult. It's a very simple concept. Since you've been redeemed, what have you done? Well, listen. You're going to go through hardships. This is one of those things. Do you trust Him through hardships? Trust Him. Stay with Him. That's kind of the first thought that comes to me out of all of this. and It starts off the passage... I have a couple more things to say, but at a more appropriate moment in the sermon, I'll bring those up. The passage starts off by saying, Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Let me say two things about that statement. First of all, I don't think that he is in just a blanket kind of way talking to anybody who is rich. I think that as you read through the passage, what he's talking about are rich people who oppress people who are below them. People who have the means to manipulate and oppress and persecute people who, in this case, financially and materially, are at a status beneath them. I know that to be true because... I won't turn there but oh, we have before actually no I will turn there let's just settle this now keep your finger here and turn to second first Timothy chapter 6 we've looked at this before first Timothy chapter 6 and verse 17 here we see the apostle Paul giving commands to the godly who may happen to be rich. He's addressing the church and he says, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty. It's the opposite of the people that James is addressing. The people that James, address, the people that James addresses are haughty. Haughty means high-minded. Haughty means that they are rich and they have no reservation or conscience about looking down at others. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy." Look, let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come. Again, that future look. That they may lay hold on eternal life. So those who are in Christ, who are rich, instructions are given for how to live godly as a person who has been entrusted with that. Now, back to James That's how I know that in James chapter 5, he's not arbitrarily speaking to everyone who's rich. But he says this, Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. See, here's that counterintuitive nature of Christianity. In the world, we associate being rich with pleasure. And we automatically associate being rich with security Comfort, influence, freedom. James says, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Those who are not in Christ and those who use their riches to wield influence in a way that oppresses people who are maybe at a smaller or lower station in life, they may appear in this life to be advancing. But this life is going to be destroyed. And this life is going to be end. And those people are told, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming. And by the way, let me just put this in here now. Why does James, who has been heretofore clearly addressing believers in his letter suddenly have this word of admonishment to rich people who oppress people. Well, let me just say, I think he is still addressing believers. He's not addressing believers as rich people who oppress people. He's speaking, if you will, about them. And he's speaking for the sake of those who are believers. That's why he reaches the conclusion in verse 7, Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. In other words, I want you to see, brethren, the destiny, the future of those who are oppressing you, right? So, James is not writing to non-believers because there's no reason to expect that a non-believer would even care. Here, just logically follow the thought. How many non-believers do you know who even know that there's a book of James in the Bible or even care? Not too many, right? So he's writing this for the sake of people who are reading his letter to encourage them to hang on and to encourage them to endure. Showing them that the fate of those who persecute them and oppress them is certain and in the hands of God. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Right? So, riches corrupted. Riches can be corrupted by how they're gotten. Riches can be corrupted by what they're used for. Riches can be corrupted by how they're exalted and their trust and in many other ways. Your garments are moth-eaten, right? The picture is the person who thinks he's got the beautiful, fancy clothes on when in fact, what? They're, they're actually being eaten away right beneath their noses. Your gold and silver are corroded, right? So your riches, your clothing, your gold and your silver... You trust in it. You use it to influence and oppress other people. But in actuality, it's corroded, moth-eaten, and corrupted, and fading away. Look at this. The corrosion of the gold and silver is said to be a witness against you, and look, and will eat your flesh like fire. Just like corrosion eats away at metal in various forms, right? Even precious metal. I even have an illustration of this. I've been trying to repaint the hideous looking hood of my big van, which some of you have seen. So, yes, in order to do that, I had to use sandpaper and scrape and scrape and scrape and scrape away the rust and then try to cover it up with primer and then paint all over it. Because that's what happens with metal. It gets corrupted and it gets eaten away. Even precious metal can be corroded and this can happen with it, right? And that's what's going on here. Just like metal can be corrupted and corroded and eaten away, what's he say? So you are going to have your own flesh eaten up by what? Fire. You think maybe there's a picture of hell there? It's impossible to say specifically if that's what he had on his mind. But... um, I can certainly deduce that, at least in my own thinking. You know, that that's the destiny of the person who rejects Christ. And that's the destiny of the person who is oppressing believers if they don't repent. It goes on like this. You've heaped up treasure in the last days. And isn't that the truth? It seems like these people are always getting ahead. Right? It seems like these people who are oppressing others, it seems like they're so comfortable and they're always getting ahead and everything seems to be going well for them. And we sit as believers and we wonder why. God, why do we struggle? Why do we endure hardship when we're just trying to honor You and please You? God, why when we share the Word with other people do we endure all this trouble? Why don't You make the path wide open for us and smooth sailing? And it just seems like those who are wicked and evil, they go through their lives and everything seems to go perfect and they just acquire their riches and they're able to manipulate and control others and keep other people down when they want to. And we wonder why? Why? Well, look at verse 4. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. Now, what does that tell us? First of all, James, speaking on behalf of the Lord there like a prophet, says what? God notices. Look, he's talking about what? People who have obtained their riches by... The word is fraud is used. People who by fraudulent means, in this case what? They've actually defrauded their own workers who mowed their lawns. We take lawns for granted, right? Everybody has like a lawn on the front of their house that they have to cut. That's actually a fairly modern thing in society to be common, that people would have a lawn. In the ancient world, and even not too distant past a couple of centuries, if property was not being used for farming, it would only be because the person was really rich and they didn't need it. If if, a, if, for example, an English aristocratic estate would have beautiful lawns, it would be a sign that the people were really, really rich because they didn't need to farm their land. The typical person throughout history needed to farm their own land in order to, like, survive, right? So the really rich ones were the ones who had lawns and there would be people who would mow their lawns and they would hold their wages back. And the source of their riches was defrauding their own workers. Evil, right? Well, those cries cry out. And look at this. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. The Lord of Sabaoth. Now I know it's, it's tempting to look at that title and see the word Sabbath because it looks like it, but it has absolutely nothing to do with that. It's just... a uh, A New Testament rendering that for some reason translated into English is not translated the same way the Hebrew is. But it's a very rare occurrence of one of God's titles that is very common in the Old Testament, and that's Lord of Hosts. In fact, if you've been coming on Thursday nights, the most frequent users of this phrase, Lord of Hosts, are the prophets. And the minor prophets especially. Twice it was used in Zephaniah, Zechariah chapter 6. When we get back to Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 7 actually uses this title six times. Right? And uh, But in the New Testament, it really only appears twice. And one of those appearances is a quotation from Isaiah that, that Paul uses in uh, Romans chapter 9, I think. But here, James uses this title, Lord of Hosts, or the Lord of Sabaoth. What is the... What is the concept? We sing a hymn that refers to it, right? Uh, um, what is it? Someone tell me. The Martin Luther hymn that we always sing. A mighty fortress is our God. One of the verses there. Lord Sabaoth, his name from age to age the same, and he must win the battle, or ever that goes. And the idea is the Lord of hosts. A host in the Old Testament literature is a reference to an army The Lord of hosts refers to Him as being the Master, the General, the Ruler over all of the armies of heaven. You get a glimpse of it in the New Testament, don't you? When? When Jesus was born and an angel appears to the shepherds. And then it says what? Suddenly a whole host of the angels of heaven appeared. And they were shouting and saying, Uh, glory to God in the gloria in excelsis Deo, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace and goodwill toward men. Right, But that, that heavenly host is the army of God. Now look, the prophets used that term all the time because what did the prophets do? The prophets were trying to wake people up. They were trying to wake people up so they would identify God as the Lord of this great heavenly army. The prophets who looked ahead to the future, like Zechariah, who we're studying now, they would refer to God as the Lord of hosts because they wanted the people who were trying to rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple to be encouraged that their God would fight for them. That's the idea of Lord of Sabaoth. It doesn't come up in the New Testament. Not very much at all. The New Testament is much more focused on the identity of the Messiah, of course, right? So we speak of Jesus much, much more by name. But here comes that title. And what does it say? The cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts, the Lord who is over the armies of heaven. You see? I understand how that title specifically fits in to the context of what he's saying. God. Who fights for you hears those cries. God who fights for His children. Oh, oh, listen. That fight may not be seen or experienced in this existence. But the day is coming when the Lord of hosts will take up His arms against those who are the oppressors of His children. That is said by James to his children to encourage them, what? To endure. Verse 5. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. Right? What's the day of slaughter? The day of slaughter is a reference to collecting the booty. Collecting the spoils of war. Right? And that's... Listen... There are people and have always been people in the world who view other people of a lesser station than them as an opportunity for slaughter and collecting the spoil. And they fatten their own hearts through doing it. And they persecute and oppress the poor. And in this particular case, those who have believed the gospel... Listen, again, where do we start? James is addressing people who are... Primarily Jewish and believers in Jesus. They would have suffered in any society. Right? I mean, Jews throughout history have suffered in various societies. Even where they've succeeded, they've often been cut down and driven out. Here in this particular case, now you have Jews who proclaim not only that there is only one God, which would have flown in the face of almost every false religion in the world, But now they believe that Jesus, the Messiah, is that God, died on the cross and actually rose from the dead and only those who trust in Him can be saved. Guess what that got them? Excluded, cut down, persecuted, oppressed. It left them very often poor. It left them very often in a very lowly estate in society. And they struggled because they wondered, where is God in all of this? Today, you have false teachers who say what? They say the opposite. If you're a Christian, put your trust in God and God will make you rich. God will give you this and God will give you that. And listen, there might even be people sitting here. There might be people listening who like to listen to those kinds of preachers. I don't know why. It's not the teaching of the Bible. The teaching of the Bible is if you're really going to walk with the Lord the way the Lord wants you to walk, you're really going to put your trust in God. You're going to suffer for it. Even in a society like this. And you need to trust Him. You need to trust Him because the day is coming when He is going to avenge the persecution of His children. You have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. The idea is the evil, rich oppressor goes after people who don't even fight back, likely because they don't have the means to fight back. They seem to get ahead. God sees it. God sees all of the fraud. God sees all of the lust. God sees all of the manipulation. God hears and is aware of all of the lies, all of the slander, all of the exclusion, all of the silencing, all of the persecution of every one of His children. Their suffering cries out to the Lord of hosts. And what does he say? Be patient. Hang on. Trust me. Trust me. I will see you through to the end. Isn't that the conclusion drawn in verse 7? Therefore, so there you see a therefore. You know a conclusion's being drawn. What's the conclusion? In other words, because. Because the Lord of hosts has a certain target date and method for the avenging of His own children, because, and that's what He says, vengeance is mine. That's the right word. We don't seek vengeance. We patiently endure. Vengeance is mine, God says. Because the Lord has the fate of those who persecute His children, right squarely in the palm of his own hand, if they don't repent. Therefore, what? Be patient. Wait and trust. That's Christian patience. Human carnal patience just means wait while there's a lot of hard stuff going on. Christian patience means wait for one specific thing, and that is the end of the age, that the Lord Himself will return and make it right. Jesus taught us to pray, Your kingdom come. That should be a regular part of the heart cry of every Christian. Not, Lord, I love my life. Help me to have more fun. Help it to be better. Help it to be smoother. I've had Christians over the years who... Meaning, meaning well, and I don't mock it at all, but have said to me, I don't really want the Lord to come because I'm really enjoying my life right now. I have dreams, I have hopes, I have things. I would have. Look, I'm not, I'm not dispelling the, the honest, naturally human, organic sensation of having hopes and dreams and things you want to do in this life, but I'm telling you something right now. Our Lord taught us to pray for His kingdom to come. And what these people are being told in this letter is, you look around at all of the places in the world that you can see where people seem like they've got it all together and everything is going well, yet they have no God in their lives, no Christ in their lives, no regard for God, no regard for the Gospel, and they will even take that to the point where they mock and persecute and oppress Christians. You take a look around at all that, and don't you envy that. Don't you look at that and think to yourself, well, maybe that's the way I should have gone. No. Do you realize what we are speeding towards, brothers and sisters? Well, James tells us here. What's he saying? Be patient until what? The coming of the Lord. As I read through this passage this week and thought about it, I thought about what a nice picture of God. God's described in four distinct ways in this passage, isn't he? He's described, first of all, we've already seen it, as Lord of Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. That is the commander of the army. Second, He's described as coming again. Right? Then later on in verse 9, He's described as the judge. So if you just take those first three things, what do you have? You have a God who is the commander of all the armies of heaven, who's coming again, and He's coming to judge. But then what's the fourth thing? He is compassionate and merciful. He is compassionate and merciful to who? He is compassionate and merciful to who? To those who trust Him. And that's really the whole thing James is getting at in a nutshell. The Lord of hosts, the Lord of Sabaoth, the Lord of all the armies of heaven is coming again to judge. But He is compassionate and merciful to those who who put their trust in Him and persevere patiently even through oppression and persecution. That's what James is saying. This all hinges... This is not, this is not some grand theological discourse that needs to be made. This all hinges on one thing, God is trustworthy or He is not. That's it. There you go. All the books, all the seminars, all of the sermons, everything ever preached or written or anything else, all boils down to that. God made us. God loved us even though we rejected Him. God gave Himself for us. God drew us to Himself by the preaching of His Word, by the power of His Spirit. God opened our hearts to repentance and faith in Christ. Do you trust Him? Do you trust Him for your eternal salvation? Do you trust Him to take you through today? Do you trust Him to take you through the hard thing you're going through? Do you trust that He will bring you to the end? Do you trust that He will bring you to the deliverance that He promised will come one day? Do you trust Him? That's what all of this boils down to. May I say to you that that is the essence of Christianity. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him, the Bible says. Example given. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. Well, Lord... I planted my crops. I planted, I plowed my field. I planted, the rains came. What? Listen, you still got to wait for the latter rain too. Right? Some crops are like that. I don't pretend to be an expert in agriculture. I, I don't spend a lot of time looking into it. But I know that in some places in the world, in certain kind of crops there are rainy seasons and in those seasons they must be waited through waited through for a long time for any fruit to be produced that's what it's like to go through life patiently enduring as a christian not just the summer rains but the autumn rains too not just the early rains but the latter rains we must Wait on the Lord. You will suffer. Trust me, there are plenty of people who will make sure that you suffer. Don't worry about that. There's no shortage of those. Even in a sophisticated, modern, progressive culture like ours, there are plenty of people that as soon as, as, soon as you bend your heart towards believing and following and serving the Lord Jesus Christ they will make you suffer one way or another wait through the early and the latter rains the farmer will get his crops wait for the early and the latter rains deliverance will come trust him you will struggle it's a macro view In the micro view, we may not experience the deliverance in the terms of experience in this life. God does not promise to make everything in our lives right the way Christians even struggle through very difficult and hard things. The call to trust is a macro call with the big picture in mind you may experience healing, deliverance, provision in this life. We all experience some of that. Yet at the same time, we also experience hardships. We pray for this, and it seems that God answers the way we hoped. We pray for this, and it seems that God doesn't answer the way that we hoped. We say, I pray for this, and God says, yes. We pray for that, and God says, no. We pray for this, we don't get a yes or a no. We're just waiting and waiting and waiting. Listen. You may experience that. But what James is talking about here is wait for those latter rains to come. Wait for the end. When the end comes, when the end comes, those who have trusted in the Lord, listen to me, listen to me, there is going to be nothing but rejoicing. All of the suffering will be over. All all of the persecutors will be silenced. Silenced. All of the thorns in the flesh will be plucked away and remembered no more. Amen? Amen. That's the future of the one who trusts, trusts, trusts in Christ. Trust Him now. Trust Him always. Verse 8, You also be patient, just like the farmer, you also be patient... Establish your hearts. In other words, what? Establish your hearts is a very elaborate, eloquent way to say something that's controversial in modern Christian circles. Establish your hearts means, ready? Decide. Choose. Establish your heart. Not wait for God to establish your heart. No. Establish your heart. Be patient. Establish your heart. Decide to trust. I can't do that for you. Your brothers and sisters can pray for you, but they can't do that for you. God can do anything for you, but here does not say that He will. He tells you to. Establish your heart. Not, I will establish your heart. Establish your heart. Decide that even when all of the wicked of the world seem to get their way and seem to be even able to oppress me and harm me and distract me and cause my faith to seem like it's weakening or suffer and I'm stressed and I'm challenged, establish your heart. Decide now that I am going to wait for the latter rains just like the farmer must before I concern myself with what's growing on the tree. Decide. Establish your heart. God is faithful. The latter rains will come and the promises will be received. And when the latter rains come and the promises are received, all of this struggle that we face through persecution won't even be a memory. It'll just over. Over. That day's coming for the one who trusts Him. What a magnificent passage of Scripture this is. Because it tells us of justice for the humble one who seeks righteousness and walks with Christ and trusts in God, trusts in Christ, There is a future deliverance that is locked in and certain. For the one who maybe has all of the material of this world, even if they've obtained it by fraud and violence, and they use it to manipulate and oppress others, just as certain as the deliverance of the trusting is, is the judgment and the destruction of them. No need to back down from saying it either. That's the point of the passage. Ready? It sounds maybe ungracious. It sounds maybe not compassionate. Personally, I don't care what it sounds like. It's biblical, and that's really all I care about. James, ready? James uses the future certain judgment of the oppressors to comfort Christians. That's what's happening in this passage. And so he says two things. God's going to judge the wicked and God's going to redeem the humble. God's going to judge the unbelieving, but He's going to redeem the believing. God's going to judge the oppressor, but He's going to deliver the oppressed who trusts in Him. And that ought to bring comfort. We are not people as christians who are to be driven around simply by the highs and lows the ebbs and flows of experiences in this life twice in this paragraph he says what the coming of the lord is at hand be patient brethren until the coming of the lord You also be patient, like the farmer. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. You think he's trying to remind us of something? Here, this has no deep theological meaning here, but I can't help but point this out. When James writes this, he's talking about his half-brother. How cool is that, right? I mean, James is one of the other sons of uh, Mary and Joseph. One of Joseph and Mary's natural sons. So when James says the coming of the Lord is at hand, he's talking about his big brother, right? Isn't that pretty neat? Nobody answered me, so maybe... did anyone think that's neat? I think that's just really neat. Talk about a family reunion. How would you like to be a fly on the wall on that one? That's cool. Very cool. Because, because James and the others, they thought Jesus was a little crazy early in his ministry, right? But look at him now. Look at James now. Listen to this. Big brother's coming back. That's good, right? Yeah, I like that. Someone's getting it. Good, 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 good. All right. Now, what can happen? What can persecution, if we're not reminded that God is going to judge the wicked... And He is going to deliver the ones who humbly trust in Him. When we get out of that and we just start to lean on our own understanding, which Proverbs tells us not to do, right? But when we start to just lean on what we organically, intrinsically understand about life, which is fight back, fight fire with fire, right? We have all these sayings that should have nothing to do with how we think. Fight fire with fire. What do you mean? Get vengeance? What do you mean? Someone manipulates me, I'm going to manipulate them back. Someone slanders me, I'm going to slander them back. Someone oppresses me, I'm going to oppress them back. Really? No, that has no place in the life of the Christian. See, here's what happens. Verse 9, we're told don't grumble against one another. That's what we do when we get outside of trusting God. We start to grumble. We start to grumble means to complain. And it says we start to complain what? We don't. It it gets so bad that we're not even complaining about like life. We're complaining about each other, is what it says. That sort of complaining spirit, when we are carnal, that sort of complaining spirit, when we're not trusting in God, that sort of complaining spirit causes us to lash out against each other. And as I said last week, who is served when that happens? The devil. The great divider of the brethren. Aha! Right? Now I've got them right where I want them. He goes on here, James, to make reference to Job. And at the risk of getting ahead of myself, what happened in Job's life? Satan said, hey, you you take away this from him, you take away wrath from him, God, he will curse you to your face. Right? Right? But what did Job do? He didn't. He patiently endured through it all. He had a hard time. He had friends who meant well, who gave him bad counsel. Right? But he endured through it. And what was God's plan? It's the plan. It's the intent of the end. It's the end, brothers and sisters. Our problem is... When we get our minds off of God, when we stop trusting God, what happens to our minds? Our minds, which when, when we're meditating on God and trusting in God, our, our minds are out there thinking of the end, thinking of His return, thinking of our glorious future, thinking of our redemption, thinking of seeing our beautiful Jesus who loves us face to face and being with Him forever. That's where we are in our minds and with our sight, the eyes of our hearts when we're in the place we're supposed to be. When we get away from trusting in God, what happens? That vision which was heavenward starts to drift down, doesn't it? It starts to drift down into the earth. And we start to look. And we start to grumble. And we start to complain. We start to gossip. We start to snipe. And we start to get after each other, is what it says. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. In other words, you share the condemnation of the oppressors when you give in to them like that. When Satan brings his persecution... It's not just because he doesn't want you to have this or he doesn't want you to have that or blah, 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 blah. Listen, when Satan brings his persecution, it's always for this reason and this reason only to get people to not trust but rather curse God. It goes back to the Garden of Eden. You see it in the book of Job. You see it even with Jesus himself. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world if you'll just worship me instead of your dad. Look, behold the judge is standing at the door. Don't grumble against one another lest you be What are you going to do? Don't you We're just told that the judge is going to come back and make all these things right. And then you sit, you stand, you walk, you rise up every day, blah 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 blah, grumbling, complaining, sniping against one another, making everything immeasurably worse. It's hard to live as a Christian. The church shouldn't make it harder. Hello? It's hard to face this world as a Christian. The church, the body of Christ, should make it a little easier because of our love for one another. But we grumble against one another and we're acting like the condemned when the judge who's bringing the condemnation is right at the front door. Why? There's only one reason why. We fail to trust Him. We have not established our hearts. That should have been the sermon title for today. Establish your heart. Decide. Choose. Right now. I'm going to trust God. I don't care what is done to me. I don't care what is said about me. I don't care what the world brings. I am going to trust God. I'm going to get in my Bible. I'm going to get in the Word. I'm going to get my mind where it belongs. I'm going to pray. I'm going to seek Him. And I'm going to hang out with brothers and sisters who will do the same, who I can do for them and they for me. We have a sacred, maybe the most high calling of any human being, way higher than mine as a pastor. Way higher than anything else. The sacred calling of any human being is that you have with your words and with your deeds and with your intentions the capacity to encourage or break down other believers. Is anything more fragile and precious than that? James says here, don't complain against one another. The judge is standing right at the door. Look, take the prophets, my brethren, who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Right? What did they do? They prophesied and preached and nobody listened to them. So what did they do? They continued to prophesy and preach. You come now and you listen to Haggai and Zechariah. Those are prophets that got listened to. All right? Like that generation of Jews that came out of the exile, they did listen for the most part. But the pre-exilic prophets, nobody listened to them. You know, really, only one of the pre-exilic prophets got listened to. You know which one it was? Pre-exilic, before the, before the Babylonian exile. One. Gives with a the J. Rode around in a fish for a while. Yeah, 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 yeah. He got listened to preaching to Nineveh. Pagans, they listened to him. None of the other prophets got listened to in any meaningful way. But what do we say about the prophets? What, a bunch of failures? No, what do we say about them? Indeed, we count them blessed to endure. They stand up in every synagogue and say, God bless Isaiah. God bless Daniel. God bless Ezekiel. Right? But then nobody does what they say. Because as soon as hardship comes, we stop trusting God and we start taking bites out of each other. Stop it. Establish your heart. Commit. Decide. As a Christian, I'm going to trust in God. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. Don't we? Isn't that the truth? We we read in the Bible about people who endure hardship and we say, wow, awesome. We read about the Apostle Paul and the hardships that he goes through. Man, how did he do it? Listen, we're not not called to admire other people who love God. We're called to emulate other people who love God. Follow in their footsteps. You've heard of the perseverance of Job. Look at this. And seen the intended... End, the end intended by the Lord. Right? So, what's the point there? Look, when you read the book of Job, you're outside of something that really happened. When you read the book of Job, you read about a conversation between Satan and God in heaven. And you're reading, and you're reading about these conversations that Job has with his friends who are like, Come on, Job, everything's hard for you. You must have done something wrong. Just Glorify God and confess it. Right? And you're on the outside because you can see what the intended end was. That you can see that God all along was allowing this to happen because He knew His servant Job would not curse Him. And what was the intended end? God in His, what's it say here? Compassion and mercy. God in His great compassion and mercy blessed Job, beyond anything that he had been blessed before, at the end of the struggle. During the struggle, it was hard. During the struggle, even people who professed to know and love God were like, Job, wake up here. Come on, come on, brother. Brother, obviously, there's something you're not telling us. There has to be, because. There's no way all this could happen unless God and Job... I I don't know. You guys are breaking my heart. I haven't haven't done anything. I don't know. I can't point... What have I done? Someone show me what I've done. God allowed him to suffer because God knew from moment uno that he was going to bless Job's socks off at the end. And may I say something? God knows that about us too. But will you trust Him? Will you trust Him? Will you trust Him? Will you wait and will you trust Him through things that are hard? I'll save verse 12 for a little recap for next week. Jed and come on up and lead us in our last hymn.